Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that it's a great day to be alive. Say it with me. Look into the mirror. Not if you're driving. Don't do that. Where are you going, by the way, if you're driving? Do you have a mask with you? If you don't, turn around and go get your mask, okay? Don't be the guy without the mask in the shop, whatever the shop is that you're going to. Be the person with the mask, okay? So look into the mirror. Great day to be alive. I'm grateful for I'm grateful for my health. I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my dog slash cat slash snake slash hamster. There you go. All right. I've got a great episode for you today. A gentleman by the name of Paul Tuff. He is a prolific writer and the author of a book called The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us. Spoiler alert, money is a big deal in the college admissions process. And if your family has money, your kid has way more options than families that don't have money. It's a fact. And we're going to talk to Paul about that in just a minute. Before we do, speaking of money, let's earn some. Today's episode is brought to you by bookshop.org. Bookshop.org is a consortium of independent booksellers who have come together online to provide you with a great book buying experience. On bookshop.org is the crazy money list where I have listed all the books by all the authors I've interviewed here on Crazy Money. You can find it by clicking the link in the show notes. And when you buy a book there, crazy money gets a little bit and you support independent booksellers. So everybody wins. There you go. You know what? One question I've been asking myself a lot in the past 10 weeks Am I a bad parent? I don't think bad parents ask themselves that question a lot. So hopefully that's an indicator that I'm at least a concerned parent. I want these kids to be stimulated. I want them to have lots of interesting things to do. I also want them to be able to have self-directed time where they play by themselves and make up games and draw or or they entertain themselves, right? Because we're not supposed to be doing that. We're not supposed to be being helicopter parents. But how can you not helicopter parent during a pandemic? How do you not do that? And how much time on the iPad is six hours per day? Am am I frying my kid's brain? I feel as if like I should be teaching their class, like homeschooling them proper. But then again, it's summertime apparently because schools ended early. It's going to be the longest summer ever. Well, speaking of school, there's been a lot of discussion about the value of college and the value of private school, especially when distance learning is implemented. But today we're going to talk to Paul Tuff about different situations that are happening on college campuses and specifically in the college admissions office. So I want to give you a little background for me in college because my college application process was not a happy one. Early in life, I decided that I wanted to make it to the next level of affluence, which would be upper middle class dumb, the next level would be. And I was going to do that by studying hard, going to a good college, and then getting a great job at EF Hutton as a broker because It was 1987, okay? And so I put a lot of effort into high school. I was very involved. I was the president of the student body. I was captain of the football team. I had the lead role in the play. And I had mostly A's, almost all A's, and lots of AP classes and all that kind of stuff. And this is 30 plus years ago. They had like two flavors of AP back then. I think I had history and, did I think Spanish? No. History and English. We had AP history and English. Anyway, I was very involved and I put a lot of emphasis and a lot of hope into the college admissions process. Yet my parents were not, they were laissez-faire as it related to college in the sense that part of me thinks my dad was like, I got six kids. I can't afford to send any of them to an Ivy League school. So go to the state school and you'll be fine. I sort of didn't listen to him and I went on and I applied to Princeton and UVA and UNC and of these other schools. And suffice to say, I didn't get into Princeton and I had bought a pair of Princeton boxer shorts 
And when I got the skinny envelope from Princeton, New Jersey, I took my boxer shorts. I had other underwear on. I took them out to the deck and I burned them on our back deck. That's what I did because screw Princeton, right? By the way, I understand this isn't a tragedy and it pissed me off enough to put real effort into my business school admissions process. And I got into Dartmouth and my life has been perfect ever since. Of course, in those intervening eight years, I doubted myself the whole time. Anyway, never mind. Point being, I abdicated way too much of my self-worth to the admissions office in a strange city where people don't know me, where people have no ability to really look into my soul and say, that's the kind of a person we want at our school. And this is one of the reasons why parents and students lose their mind in the college admissions process. Well, that and the fact that where you go to school matters, as Paul Tuff says in the title of his book that we're going to discuss the years that matter most, how college makes or breaks us, where you go to school sets you on a trajectory for your career and is the number one predictor of how much money you're going to make in your life. And it's a big deal. And parents go nuts over it, as do the kids. And here's the thing about the admissions process. It is not transparent. It is not meritocratic. And where you get in is based to, in large degree, on how much money you have. And as much as we'd like to think that we're in a far more democratic process in 2020 than we were 30 years ago, and that things like diversity and helping to balance both the racial and financial diversity in the classroom is happening, it's not happening nearly as much as you think it is. And that's what Paul Tuff reveals in his book. The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us, it's a really interesting discussion, something you should be aware of. Maybe you'll be happy with it because you have money and your kid's going to have an advantage. Maybe it'll bum you out because this situation isn't good for America. Paul Tuff is a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine. His writing has also appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, GQ, and Esquire, and on the op-ed page of The New York Times. He's a speaker on topics including education, parenting, equity, and student success. Among his previous books is How Children Succeed, Grit, Curiosity, and the Hidden Power of Character, which was translated into 27 languages and spent more than a year on the New York Times hardcover and paperback bestseller list. You've probably read that book. So here's my conversation with Paul Tuff. I still really believe in college for a lot of people just as like an experience, a life-changing experience, a time to increase your knowledge, grow your independence, become your own person. Whether you go to college or not, these years at the end of your teenage years and beginning of your 20s are crucially important in your psychological development, emotional development, intellectual development. And so I think part of the answer of what you're getting from college is you're becoming a new person. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Paul Tuff, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you. Great to be here. What did college do for you? It's a great question. I had a strange college career, especially for someone who's gone on to write a book about college. I dropped out of college not once, but twice. I was very uh, <laughs> perseverant in my, in my dropping out career. And I feel like I got a lot out of the colleges I went to. I went to Columbia University first in New York, and then went to McGill University in Montreal. And I dropped out finally because I was pretty close to graduation, but I got this internship at Harper's Magazine. This was a long time ago in the late 80s. And I had been doing fine in college, but had never really loved it. 
when I got to this internship, I felt like it was the thing that I'd been waiting for, the sort of intellectual community, doing interesting things, learning about the world that I'd wanted out of college. So that felt like once I'd found that, there was no reason to go back. And maybe because of my own privileges or maybe because it was a different era, I was able to enter this white collar career without credential of a BA. I think that's different now and different for most people, but at the time it was possible. What'd your folks say when you told them you were going to quit? They were remarkably uh, sanguine about, about the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, so now I look back, uh, having done lots of reporting about education in general and higher education in specific, I look back at my experience in college through a different kind of lens. And, you know, on the one hand, I sort of commend my parents for not getting more involved and for sort of saying, like, it's your life, it's your choice, you figure out what you want to do. On the other hand, now as a parent, too, I kind of can't believe <laughs> that they didn't freak out a little bit more when I was dropping out, but they they mostly trusted me to make those decisions. What a concept, trusting your children. I'm not sure I'm capable of that yet. Uh, I'm not sure they were right, but they did. <laughs> you said things were different then, or it was a different era. What's different about college today than it was 10 or 30 years ago when you were at college? Yeah. Well, so in writing this book, I've spent a lot of time reading economists and reading the data on how economists call the college wage premium has changed. And the economic value of a BA is higher now than it has been at any other point in American life, and especially of sort of competitive, selective college degree. It's also much more expensive, which changes the equation somewhat. But it is just very difficult right now to succeed in life as a young person coming out of high school without some kind of credential beyond a high school degree. Again, I think it was pretty hard back in the late 80s when I was doing it, but statistically, there was a more plausible path than there is now. You say something to the effect in the book that a college diploma isn't a path to affluence so much as it is a safety net to falling through the cracks. One of the strange things that's happening in the country right now is that as the economic data is becoming clear that a college degree, a BA, is incredibly valuable in the labor marketplace, we as a culture, as a country, are also becoming much more skeptical about it. And more and more people, especially young people, are feeling like a college degree isn't worth it. And I think that part of the reason for that is that while it is still valuable, it's mostly valuable in comparison to only having a high school degree. And so it's not so much, especially for families that are coming from the middle class, it's not so much what it used to be in our parents' generation, where a college degree would rocket you forward into another in the economic landscape. Instead, it's just that a college degree will help you to not fall behind. And trying to enter the workplace with only a high school degree now is just much riskier and less plausible than it was 30 years ago. So when one pays college tuition today, either for themselves or for their child, what are they buying? Lots of things, I think. I mean, so I spent a lot of time. I spent six years working on this book, visited 21 different states and lots of different college campuses and talked to lots of high school students and college students. And so, you know, a lot of what we're talking about so far and a lot of the analysis that I do in my book is about economics. But I still really believe in college for a lot of people just as like a, an experience, a life-changing experience, a time to increase your knowledge, grow your independence, become your own person. Whether you go to college or not, these years at the end of your teenage years and beginning of your 20s are crucially important in your psychological development, emotional development, intellectual development. And so I think part of the answer of what you're getting from college is you're becoming a new person. You know, you're growing up, you're learning about the world, you're learning about what your passions are and what your interests are. And then when you go back to the lens of economics, you're also gaining some kind of skills that are useful in the labor marketplace. 
what we don't know is exactly what those skills are, right? Like, and exactly how much they are, you know, quote unquote skills and how much there are other things, connections, confidence, you know, all of the sort of networks that especially selective colleges give to students. I sort of feel like it doesn't matter what exactly, like the fact that we can't parse that out and say what you're gaining, the reason you make more money once you graduate. We don't know whether that's because of your knowledge or your intelligence or your college roommate went on to invent Facebook, uh, but something is happening <laughs> when you're there in college to make you more employable and increase your income. Yeah. What would you say are the most dangerous myths about college and the college admissions process as held by upper middle class plus Americans? That it's fair. <laughs> um, I think <laughs> the most powerful and kind of painful revelation that I got out of my book was that the way that college admissions works, and especially selective college admissions works, is unfair and is heavily slanted towards families with more money. I wrote down random and capricious as something. <laughs> yes. I mean, I agree it's random, except that it's like the larger patterns are not random in that if you've got lots of money, you just have all of these advantages. And I kind of knew in general that that was true, but it is so striking in chapter after chapter and story after story, the kind of advantages that people who are growing up in families with some money that they experience all through childhood, and especially in those last couple of years of high school, it's amazing how how all of those kind of come together to give well-off students this advantage more so than was true in the past. So I think that, you know, people from that class, people who start that process with a lot of money, they still find it really, you know, bewildering and difficult and their kids do work incredibly hard in high school and incredibly hard to get into college. And so they tend to feel like when they do get into a selective college, that's because of how hard they worked or how smart they are. And I think it's really important to recognize that that is maybe partly true, but it is also, there are lots of other students who are just as smart and working just as hard, but don't have the same kind of family resources who aren't getting admitted or can't afford the same sorts of institutions. Why do parents lose their minds when their children are applying to college? It's a good question. So, I mean, I think there's two reasons at the very least. I mean, one is that, you know, it really does matter where you go to college, that there's been this trend, I think, over the past decade or so to try to get especially upper middle class parents to calm down and not freak out so much about <laughs> where their kids go to school. And right. I, I agree with this campaign. I do think that parents take it too seriously, especially some parents. But you can't argue against them. It doesn't matter because the data is clear that when you go to a highly selective institution, those institutions do spend more money on your education. They do pay off in terms of lifetime earnings you're going to end up with. You know, for any individual student, we can't say for sure that going to a more selective college matters, but we also can't say that the push to get into a more selective college is completely baseless or crazy. But that said, it is still over the top for a lot of parents, especially in certain affluent communities. And so why that is, I think, has to do with, you know, some big changes in parenting that have happened over the past few decades, where especially upper middle class parents have just become so much more engaged and involved in their children's upbringing and see it as this process of investment rather than this process of just letting your kids be themselves. And you can see that I've got a five-year-old and a 10-year-old, so you can see it in, you know, preschools and mommy and me classes and all the way up through elementary school and middle school and high school, there's just this sense that your kid is your project and you've got to <laughs> invest in him. And, and I feel like the problem with that, if we're competing by like how nice our cars are or our watches are, 
it's easy to say who has the nicest car or the nicest watch, but it's hard when it comes to like raising your kid. I think a lot of parents feel very competitive, but they're not sure how to, how to score the game. And college is for, I think a lot of families, the way to keep score. And so when your kid gets into a more selective college, you win, right? In your (laughs) face, neighbor. Exactly. I mean, it sounds nuts, but I think a lot of parents will recognize themselves in that competition. And, you know, it's really not healthy, right? I mean, I think parents understand that as they're doing it, but there's lots of evidence. The people for whom it is not healthy are the kids, right? Like, on both sides of the economic divide. So the affluent upper middle class kids who are going through this very intensive college application process, certainly at the end of high school, but you know, stretching back often you know, into middle school or even earlier, they often enter college just feeling completely stressed out. And the statistics about you know, anxiety and depression and other forms of mental illness among affluent kids in college are just off the charts. And I think that's related to this pressure that a lot of families put on their kids. And then on the other side of the economic divide, this intense competition on the part of these well-off families does a lot to expand the gap between what kind of higher education those families get and the lower quality higher education that low-income families get. So it's bad for your kids and it's also bad for the country. Isn't that the challenge that each of us faces? Like on the one hand, empathetic people want what's best on the macro level. On the other hand, that's my kid and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that he or she succeeds, which brings me to my next question. I also have a 10 year old. Is it too early to enroll him in an SAT prep class? (laughs) It is. It is. Please keep going away from (laughs) SAT prep for at least a He's too busy with his private baseball coach, so he doesn't have time for that anyway. Good. Right. Man, but baseball is the wrong sport, man. You got to do lacrosse or sailing or you can't have any of these proletarian sports. It's got to be only the private school sports that they pay attention to. But yeah, so you and I are parents of 10-year-olds. I think there's this one great book of sociology that I cite called Pedigree by a woman named Lauren Rivera, Mm -hmm. a sociologist at Northwestern University. And she tracks the way that not only that college admissions reflects the kind of experiences that young people have, not just in high school, but in middle school, but also the way then that when elite recruiters for law firms, investment banks, and consulting companies recruit on these selective campuses, rather than looking at how their candidates do in college, they're often looking back at the kind of sports that you played in high school and middle school, and they're selecting people who are like them, who are from affluent families. So she's got this one line where she says, there are certain parents who just know what sports to enroll your kid in in middle school in order to catch the eye of a Goldman Sachs recruiter, you know, uh, more than a decade in the future. Wow. So it's a scary prospect, but in lots of ways, there's some truth to it. Hey, everybody, it's Paul Ollinger, not tough. He's the other guy in the conversation. I wanted to let you know that next week I'll have an interview with another Paul. That's Paul Sullivan, who is the Wealth Matters columnist for the New York Times and the author of a book called The Thin Green Line, which analyzes the difference between being wealthy and being rich, wealthy versus rich. Make sure you hit subscribe right there in your podcast player to make sure that that episode loads automatically for you next week. Oh, by the way, if you like really smart people who write for the world's leading publications, I highly recommend that after you finish this excellent interview with Paul Tuff, you go back to my March 5th, 2019 interview with Ron Lieber, who is the Your Money columnist for the New York Times and the author of a great book called The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money. Could there be a better opportunity than right now to talk to your kids, whether they're home from college or still in grade school? 
homeschool that we talked about earlier. Now's a great time to read Ron's work and to implement some of the lessons in your home. The opposite of spoiled. March 5th, 2019. Check it out. Tell me about Ned Johnson. Yes, that is definitely a part of the affluent parent frenzy that's out there, though he's doing a whole lot to try to counter it. So he is an SAT tutor, a great SAT tutor in the Washington, D.C. area. He is the founder and CEO of his own company called Prep Matters, which is the biggest and most in-demand SAT prep company in the D.C. area. And he, uh, he's got lots of employees, but he is the most in-demand tutor at his company. He charges $400 an hour for his services, but he still has a completely full calendar. So I got to spend some time with him. He's a great guy. I, I sort of wanted not to like him because of that uh, <laughs> price point, but, um, but he's actually an amazing teacher and a great guy and really has a clear understanding of how what he is doing connects with the overall inequities in higher education. And a lot of what makes him good at his job is that he is a real student of stress and anxiety. He understands that for his students, who are mostly kids from very affluent families, that what is holding them back from getting the kind of test scores that they think they need is not a lack of knowledge of you know algebra or vocabulary. It is anxiety. It's their stress. It's the fact that they are taking part in the system that makes them feel not only like the rest of their lives are on their line, but like their identity, the love of their family is riding on this, you know, the score they're going to get on an SAT or an ACT test. And that has the very understandable effect of freaking these kids out. These are exactly the kind of students who do go on and experience all kinds of anxiety and depression when they get to college. And so a lot of what he tries to do is help them put things in a, a better context, is calm down, is, you know, he talks a lot about the importance of sleep and diet and balance in their lives. He also, I think one of the things I like best about what he does is that he tries to convince them that this test that he's being paid very handsomely to help them master is actually not a good measure of their ability. It's just this silly little game. And he's going to teach them the tricks that will help them outsmart this game. And I think that those little tricks help them uh, practically, but they also help psychologically because once you understand that these tests are, you know, kind of a joke, kind of a game that he can help you defeat they lose their emotional power to define you and define where you fit in the world. How ironic is that, that the $400 an hour counselor your parents hire <laughs> to help you score better is telling you to just calm down and not put so much pressure on yourself? Yeah, there are many interesting ironies in Ned's work. And I mean, the biggest one is that he's a real critic of the SAT and ACT. He knows that they are unfair tests that benefit students like the ones that he teaches. And he's uh, advocates for schools to take them, for colleges to take them less seriously. And, and so, yeah, he's trying to put himself out of a job. He is not succeeding. He still, still has a very busy schedule. But uh, to his credit, I think he is saying the right things about those tests. Well, let's talk about that. The SAT and the ACT have long been considered sacred tools of the admissions world. Where do they stand now today? They are as sacred as ever, I would say. Um, yeah, they are They're the most important metric, I think, that most colleges, especially most highly selective colleges, use in admissions. You know, admissions people would not agree with that statement, and they would say it's just one piece of the puzzle. But the most selective institutions have average incoming SAT and ACT scores that are very, very high, meaning there are very, very few people they admit who aren't at the very top of those scales. And if anything, those, those numbers at those most selective institutions are getting, are pushing higher and higher every year. So it is 
very difficult to get into one of those uh, ultra-selective institutions without a very high test score. There is some movement in various quarters of the higher education world away from those tests. There is this growing uh, what's called a test-optional movement among colleges to allow students to apply without submitting test scores. That's mostly, at this point, there's like a thousand colleges that uh, are test-optional. Mostly it's small liberal arts colleges, but there is a push towards some bigger institutions. The University of Chicago is one that went test optional during the years that I was reporting this book. And that's, I think, a really significant one just because it is such a quantitative, uh, such a, yeah, it's such a left brain place, you know, I mean, they're really, I mean, it's very highly selective, but also, you know, known for their math and and economics departments, not sort of a soft liberal place. What's the argument for and against going test optional? Well, the argument for it is that it's easy to select a great class of students without it. The best predictor, the best single predictor of whether students will succeed in college is their high school GPA. And so there are lots of ways to select great students without looking at their test scores. The other reason that institutions that go test optional say, and I think it's valid, is that because test scores correlate so highly with family income, more highly than (laughs) do high school GPAs, if you are using test scores as your main metric of who you're going to let in, it is really hard to admit a lot of low-income students, and it's really easy to admit a lot of really high-income students. So it's one of the reasons why these highly selective institutions have so many rich kids and so few poor kids. Whereas if you are able to ignore test scores or not look at them for some students and just look at who did great in school, who did well on their high school GPA, you're more likely to be able to admit a more diverse class. On the other side, the case that especially the College Board and ACT Inc., the two companies that run these tests make, is that you can't trust high school GPA. That, you know, it's just this kind of variable that different schools will do in different ways. You need some kind of concrete, objective, empirical measure, and the tests do that. There's lots of evidence that I cite in the book that I think that's just not true, that GPA really, the reason that high school GPA is a better predictor of how well students are going to do in school is because Ned can't help you all that much. Ned Johnson can't help you all that much with your GPA. It really depends not only on being smart and sort of on the ball intellectually, it also depends on lots of years of hard work. And those years of hard work are really reflective of your experience in college. So if you're the kind of kid who can get a great GPA in high school, you're very likely to be the sort of kid who's going to succeed in college. Okay. Let me run a theory by you just to be controversial. Okay. Because admissions officers are going to look at my children who are white, go to private school and come from an affluent zip code. They're going to look at them as if they've been provided Ned Johnson, like SAT prep and application coaching. Therefore I have to provide them all of that, or they'll be coming in at a disadvantage. Is that just total malarkey? It's not total malarkey. I mean, I think colleges do understand how the different opportunities exist for students from different backgrounds. But I feel like the premise of your question, which I think I shared and a lot of other people share, is that college admissions offices aren't looking for wealthy kids, right? That they actually want to select a a socioeconomically diverse class and they only want so many well-off kids and so many kids from other demographics. And in reality, so I spent some time in the book reporting on the admissions process at this one selective institution in the Northeast, Trinity, um, Trinity, yep. Trinity College, right in Hartford, Connecticut. 
and talking to lots of other admissions people and looking at admissions data. And what becomes clear is that far from you know, trying to limit the number of uh, high income students that colleges admit, in fact, they are looking for more and more of them for the very simple reason that these colleges need to make their budget, that these are tuition dependent institutions. And when you're a tuition dependent institution, you need to admit a class that can pay tuition, that can, that can keep your college afloat like lots of other institutions, is actually running at a loss every year. And so, yeah, it really matters for them. So the fact that your kids are from affluent, an affluent home is not going to be a mark against them. It's going to be a mark in their favor. All right. So let's say we're hanging out with this college admissions officer and I ply him with a few glasses of Chardonnay. What dirty secrets is he going to share with me? Well, I think that's the big one. I mean, I really do think that there is this this powerful idea in the country and especially in affluent communities that being affluent is somehow a disadvantage mm. in applying, that there's this thumb on the scale for poor kids and students of color. And the fact that not only is that not true, but that the opposite is true, that there is a thumb on the scale for uh, high income students is something that I think is really difficult for people from that culture to believe. So I don't know how many glasses of Chardonnay it would take for them to uh, admit that, but I, but I do think that it's this really powerful truth and a powerful truth that's really hard for us to accept. The other, I'll just give you one other specific one that I found in talking with Angel Perez, the head of admissions at Trinity. There was never any Chardonnay consumed in our conversations, but he was really honest and candid in his conversations. One of the things that he told me that I was really surprised by was the importance of sports in the selection of a class at a place like Trinity. Um, so Trinity is a squash champion, uh, champion has been for a long time. Of course it is. Right. But they do, there's, there are other sports that they're, they do really well in, but squash is their big one. And so about half of their class every year is admitted in early decision. And about half of their early decision students are athletes. And they're Division three schools, so they don't offer scholarships, but they do offer, they are allowed to offer an admission bonus to students who are athletes. And so the effect, you know, I feel like because we focus so much nationally on basketball and football as the big college sports. That's who we think of when we think of college athletes. But at a place like Trinity and at lots of other places, in fact, the athletes are more affluent than the student body as a whole. And it's already a pretty affluent student body. And they're getting this advantage by being athletes and usually in you know crew or lacrosse or squash or some other sport that is mostly played in prep schools. And so at institutions like that, and there are many, many of them coming from the kind of affluent family that can give you an advantage in those sports by the schools you go to, the coaches you hire when kids are in middle school, just the equipment that you can buy, you are giving your kid this big advantage in getting into those schools. That's really interesting. And there's so many things that you uncover that are eye openers, especially as they run counter to some of those assumptions we have about being penalized for being white or being affluent. One of the eye opening statements that one of the admissions counselors said about admitting kids from affluent families, I believe it was a woman who said, it's not a matter of turning down kids we'd like to admit. It's a matter of admitting students we'd like to turn down. Yeah, absolutely. Ouch. I mean, that was, yeah, that was, that was shocking <laughs> to me as well. Yeah. There's the, I think that was a line by this guy, John Bockenstedt, who was mm -hmm. the, when I was talking to him, he was the head of admissions at DePaul University. Now he's at Oregon State, I believe. The other line of his that really stuck in my mind was that he called those students the- Dumb rich kids? <laughs> he didn't call them that, no. But, uh, but he called them uh, the CFO specials, right? Oh, so right, yeah. That institutions like his have this real 
incentive. I mean, not just institutions like his, every institution has this incentive to admit low scoring, high income students. And those are the ones that write that he calls the CFO specials, meaning they really appeal to the guy whose job is to watch the bottom line, because those students can pay full tuition. And most students do not. There are huge tuition discounts that all of these institutions have to offer these days. But those students, because they don't have a lot of other options, are going to pay full tuition. And that is going to make a huge difference in whether these institutions can stay afloat. So yeah, those are exactly the students that they are not dying to admit, but uh, really need to anyway. The economic realities of education are one of the reasons why we're in this situation. So let's talk about what's happening on the supply side. Clearly, there is a hierarchy of colleges and universities in the United States. And where you sit on that hierarchy kind of defines your economic reality. So to get to some of those realities, I'd like to ask you a question. Let's say you're the newly appointed president of a small liberal arts college in the Midwest. You have a $100 million endowment. What should your goals be over the next 10 years? Practically, or if I'm being idealistic and want to make the world a better place? I think I, well, I think both. I mean, part of okay. it is just well, I mean, preserving your job, that, but what is the role of yeah. education and how do you survive? I mean, part of the problem, I think, for people in that job is that I had to ask that question, right? Because those two goals are often in conflict, I think, for a lot of college administrators these days. So, you know, if from the practical point of view, your job over the next 10 years is to keep your institution alive. You know, having a $100 million endowment for a lot of liberal arts colleges is pretty good. A lot of them have much smaller endowments these days, but it's not huge. It's not enough. And the demographics, when you talk to admissions people, they all tell you about this demographic cliff that is about to happen over the next few years where you can, you know, you can trace this dip going through middle school and into high school right now, where there are going to be many fewer students graduating from high school and being able to go to and afford college. And so for anything except the most selective institutions, there is this real panic that there's going to be a lack of students, a lack of students who can afford tuition, and that that's going to put a whole lot of institutions in grave danger. So if I'm in that job, I'm trying to figure out how to lower my costs, how to find the right class that's going to be able to pay my tuition, and how to look for other options, whether it's online school or conferences or something that will let me stay afloat. Now to switch over to the other half of the conversation, what I should be uh, thinking about, I should be thinking about equity. I should be thinking, especially, you know, if I'm in a region that isn't saturated with great colleges, I should be thinking about trying to serve the communities where I live. And that means something very different. That means admitting classes that are more reflective of the country as a whole, of the region of the whole, the state as a whole, you know, which means we're, we're becoming a more racially diverse country, especially among young people. Every high school class is, you know, less white than the one before. And so I would hope that I'd be looking for classes that are promoting social mobility and creating more diversity and educating a broader swath of the country. At the high end of the educational ecosystem, you've got Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford, et cetera, whose endowments have grown at a rate kind of reflective of what's happening with inequality at a larger level in society. Why don't those institutions just find the best thousand poor kids in the country and admit all of them per school, not total? 
Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's, it is a great question and one I, I wrestle with a little bit in the book. And it's not even like they would need to find them. They're applying, right? <laughs> um, they, they just have to look through their applications. If you're a Harvard or a Stanford or a Princeton, you have thousands of uh, highly qualified low-income students applying to your, or maybe not thousands, but a thousand um, highly qualified low-income and working-class students applying to your institution, and you are mostly rejecting them. So there is this real disconnect between what those institutions say uh, about their desire to promote mobility and uh, increase diversity and what you see in the data. You know, I spent some time at Princeton because I was one of the students I was reporting on in high school, a low-income young woman named Kiki Gilbert. She ended up at Princeton. She's a junior there now. And so I spent time there as she was having this experience of feeling like Princeton was this very wealthy, white, exclusive community. And at the same time, the president of Princeton was talking publicly on 60 Minutes and to columnists for the New York Times and the Washington Post about how much Princeton was becoming much less preppy and much more diverse. You know, it's possible that there is some truth in both of those things. Maybe they are making some small strides, but the reality is they are not making big strides. Uh, and mostly these institutions are still admitting many more high income than low income students. And I think it's not in the short term because of money, because they don't need those tuition dollars the way a place like Trinity does. I think it's about culture. You know, I think it's about this real belief that that kind of is their job, that maybe they will push their diversity numbers a little bit and get their Pell percentage, their percentage of students who are eligible for Pell grants up to 18 or 19 or even 20 percent. But that their job is to define exclusivity and define uh, quality and merit the way that has always been defined at an institution like that and not to really change the way that they think of who's qualified for that kind of education. One of the interesting points you make is that outcomes for rich kids and poor kids who attend the same schools are remarkably similar, yet elite college campuses are still serving those who need it the least. Is that going to change? Well, that's the question. Yeah, I, I don't know if it is. There's not a lot of sign, despite some, you know, some statements from those institutions that they want to make that push, that that is really going to change. There's this national institution that Bloomberg Philanthropies helped start a few years ago called the American Talent Initiative. That is this coalition of more than 100 highly selective institutions. And their stated goal is to increase the number of low-income students graduating from the most selective institutions around the country by 50,000 students over the next I can't remember if it's five years or 10 years. And they, depending on how you look at their numbers, they made some progress in the first couple of years, but they just came out with a new report that said from last year to this year, remember their goal is 50,000 new low-income students, Pell-eligible students. They increased that number, all of these institutions, by a grand total of eight from one year to the next. So when you look at the numbers, it is not really not a period of great optimism. And, you know, and this has That's, all been happening in, a, in the middle of an economic boom. And if we hit another recession over the next couple of years, it's going to get harder, not easier for those institutions to hit those goals. Well, that's less than Bloomberg paid per delegate. So, I mean, <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> I'm actually a Bloomberg fan. But anyway. All right. So we read about the student loan crisis and all these things about some colleges and right for some kids. Shouldn't everybody just go to trade school and learn to weld, code, or plumb? Some of us should. Yeah, definitely. But at the same time, I think we've got to be honest with young people about how lucrative those careers are. There has been this really interesting movement to push toward skilled trades pathways. And I think it's absolutely true that we don't have enough good pathways uh, for students who get out of high school and just don't really love school and aren't dying to sit for another four years in lecture halls. 
but understand that they need something more than just a high school credential in order to make a decent living. And we we absolutely need to find better ways to help those students, whether they want to become coders or welders or anything in between. We're not doing a great job of doing that, in part because the natural institutions to help those students are community colleges. You know, they are local and should be responsive to the needs of communities. But as a nation, we have been underfunding and defunding and disinvesting in those institutions, over, especially over the past couple of decades, with the effect that both those schools are more expensive than they used to be, but more significantly, they just, you know, they're just fewer courses, fewer qualified instructors, fewer opportunities for the students who want to follow that path. I spent some time in the book, one chapter following students who are trying to find these alternatives to college, including one student who is interested in welding. And the sort of deeper narrative that I found really important and somewhat distressing in following him is that certain members of the media and certain politicians, especially over the last, say, five years, have pushed this notion that welding especially is this great alternative to college, this way that young people can make a ton of money. You know, the headlines in the Wall Street Journal were about $150,000, $200,000 welders. And that message has really trickled down to those communities and convinced a lot of young people that it's possible to make a ton of money in a field like welding without going to college or getting any kind of degree. And what I found from both looking at the numbers and following this one student is that there are two real problems with that argument. One is you do actually need a credential, generally a degree, in order to become a welder. This student in Western North Carolina was getting an associate's degree in welding. Welding is actually a really complicated field that takes a lot of training in order to master. The other is that there just are not a lot of $150,000 a year welding jobs. The average uh, salary for a, an experienced welder is a little over $40,000 a year. Even the highest end welders in the 90th percentile of welders, I think, are making in the 60s, you know, which is a good, a good salary. And if that's what you want to do, you should absolutely do it. But we need to be honest with the young people who are getting into that career exactly what they're going to make and not tell them that it's easy to make $150,000 a year. So I've just promoted you from president of a Midwestern college to president of all things education. What are some programs you'd like to see implemented and scaled to help solve and address these problems? Well, the biggest thing that I'd like to have change is for the public to invest in public higher education again. I mean, there's this, this kind of weird, vicious cycle where we as a country have stopped investing in public higher education. You hear these stories all the time, right? Like, oh yeah, when I was going to school public college was almost free. It was $200 a year or $500 a year, right? Mm -hmm. And there was a reason for that. It wasn't that, you know, we were paying professors so much less. It was that the public was paying for a public higher education through taxes. And that was just the idea. Like students would pay a little bit, but the public would pay most of it because it was something we all benefited from. And that was true at flagship public colleges. It was true at regional public colleges. It was true at community colleges. And now it's not. And as a result, the Tuitions have gone way up, and uh, in some places, the quality of education has gone down. The diversity of student bodies has gone down because those institutions sometimes are admitting rich kids, including rich out-of-state kids, in order mm -hmm. to make their budgets. So that's the big thing that I would change. I would have us invest, once again, in a public higher education system. I think if we did that, it would also take a lot of the pressure off the private higher education system so that those schools would not have to charge as much, would not have to focus so much on admitting well-off kids. 
But then the other, if so, if I can't change our entire taxation system, the other thing that I would change <laughs> is the way that colleges think about the success of their students. And this is changing, actually. Until pretty recently, a lot of uh, institutions of higher education just thought their job was to admit students and then they were on their own, right? The students were on their own. It was just this sink or swim mentality. As a result, a lot of students are not graduating, and especially students who come from less privileged backgrounds, who are often freaked out by the experience of being a first-generation college student, leaving home for the first time. They just weren't getting a lot of support, and so they were and are dropping out in higher numbers. And I did some reporting at the University of Texas, as mm -hmm. well as a few other institutions that have made some important strides over the past few years, not sort of revolutionary changes, but providing some kind of sense of community and support mentors and advisors and counselors who can help create a feeling for those students, especially those first generation students, that this is a place where they belong and where they can succeed. Paul, I really learned a lot from reading your book. It opened my eyes to a lot of things. I appreciate you doing that. Where can people find you online? I've got a website at myname.com, Paul Tough, P-A-U-L-T-O-U-G-H.com. I'm also on Twitter and a few other places, but yeah, that website's got lots of information about me and my book. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. I really enjoyed that conversation. I enjoyed reading your book. Ladies and gentlemen, you can get that book, The Years That Matter Most, on bookshop.org by clicking the link in the show notes. Just scroll down, you'll see it. You know, some of the conversations I've enjoyed the most on this program have been those where my own narrative has been challenged and I've been pushed a little bit beyond my comfort zone. Another one that's very similar was the one I did with Richard Reeves of the Brookings Institution last year. He's the author of a book called Dream Hoarders, Hoarders, I should really emphasize the duh there, Dream Hoarders. And that's all about how the top 20%, i.e. the upper middle class and above in this country, reap a disproportionate share of the goodies to go around, whether they be educational or material, and that it really isn't as easy to go from lower class to upper class in America as we'd like to think it is. But we've all created these narratives, both individually and, and at a societal basis that say, hard work is the key to being rich, that everybody has the opportunity to be rich if they really want. And I still believe that for the most part. But I think what's important about Paul's work, it's a reminder that the playing field isn't level. It's not level. There is vast inequality in this country, and even if one came up in a household of means, there's just inequality in the, in the quality of parenting that each family has. And by no means do I want anybody feeling guilty for their success. I just want to remind myself and others to be aware that the playing field isn't level, to be, to be mindful of the fact that, yeah, everything isn't fair, and I did have advantages that helped me get to where... I ended up in life. That all started with two great parents who stayed together and and did save their money so that their kids could go to college. And that is a giant, giant advantage that not everybody has. Anyway, so I strongly encourage you to check out that book. If you haven't gone back and listened to it already, I also love that interview with Ron Lieber from last year. That was March 5th, 2019. And look up Richard Reeves, also his book, Dream Hoarders, also available at bookshop.org. What is coming up? Hey, if you happen to be around on Wednesday, March 27th, and you're looking for a little comedy, go to laughingskulllounge.com and sign up for the virtual Best of Atlanta show Wednesday, May 27th. If you're listening to this afterwards, there'll be others in the future. Go to my website, paulollinger.com, for more dates 
and information. Hopefully, we'll all be in comedy clubs again before too long. Who knows when? In the meantime, take care of yourself. Stay safe. And Mike Carano, please make me sound smart.